Podcast Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Creative people and how they do their thing and how they keep it going. These are the things I love to talk about. And today my guest is a returning champion. He's been on the show before. Stephen Rains is a poet. Um, and he has a brand new book out called A Quilt for David. And after I read it, I was like, I have to have him on again. There's, I have a lot of questions. There's so many things to talk to him about. Before I get to the interview, I want to get a mention in for my other side business, LifeCast. It's where I interview people about their lives, um, like a podcast. But if you need a gift for a parent or somebody celebrating a landmark birthday or something, get them a LifeCast. They'll get their story down in a fun, interesting way. And they'll have it forever. I just did a party for somebody recently where I went to their 60th birthday party. I interviewed all the guests, and the guest of honor loved it so much that she's buying a similar thing for her girlfriend, whose birthday's coming up soon. But because of COVID, the, the party got canceled, so we're going to do all the interviews over Zoom, and then I'm going to edit them together like a cool collage. But anyway, it's a cool thing. Go to getalifegas.com, and you can learn about it. And now, without any further plugs, uh, here is Stephen Rain. All right, joining me now via Zoom is my friend Stephen Rains, who has a wonderful new book out called A Quilt for David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I adore you, and I love your podcast, and I'm so happy to be back. The David in your title is David Johnson Acker. Uh, tell the listeners who that man is. Sure. David Acker was a closeted gay man living in uh, the Treasure Coast of Florida, which is a small conservative community. And he died in 1991. Shortly before his death, a young woman in the town uh, blamed him for her HIV infection. Then seven others came forward and said that he was responsible for their infection. Not that he had any sexual contact with them, but that there was a, dent a dental transmission of HIV. You know, his accusers, one was on the cover of People magazine, others were on television shows like A Current Affair, Inside Edition, Mori Povich, 2020, 48 Hours. It was major news at the time in 1991. And the story has been that the dentist did infect these patients. And I thought of this situation over 10 years ago and thought, hey, how, how did that happen? Right. And Is that possible? Have they proven that that happens? What's the story? Or was it something that happened early on when people were freaked out and a lot of things got believed that weren't uh, verified necessarily? What I'm certain of is that there was immense uh, homophobia at the time. Um, there still is today, but not to the extent in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I read uh, reports at that time, they're just, they're saturated with uh, homophobia and AIDS phobia. Also, at that heightened HIV hysteria, people were in a heightened state and not looking at the data, not looking at the dynamics of the situation. And I believe someone became a scapegoat. And unfortunately that person was David Acker. This book is amazing. It's something I'd never seen before, which is kind of a combination of poetry and investigative reporting, because it's, it's kind of like very artful in its language and the poetry of it. And then it's also like a Dateline special when you're like, holy shit, I can't believe that just happened. Um, so how would you describe the book to somebody? I've been calling it documentary poetry, and which is a poetic form a little less uh, well-known than um, other forms of poetry. Although it's, this book is using real-life events. Um, every detail one reads in the book is from information I found through my own reading and research or through my personal interviews I did. I spent 10 years working on this collection and researching the material. It is a subject so loaded with misinformation that it was important for me to not, you know, use 
to not fictionalize it or use poetic license. So when you read a detail, you can be assured that it's a true detail to the story. Yeah, and there's a bunch of them that are like jaw droppers. What do you know about his personality and what he was like? Like, I know he was a pilot. Uh, he had a boat. He was kind of living the life. Like, he was a rich dentist dude, right? He was a very ambitious man. He was part of an accelerated class in, at Ohio State Dental University. And he then went into the Army, and that was a way of paying off college. And he was stationed in Germany. He did start his own dental practice, and he owned a boat for recreation and had his pilot's license. Everyone I spoke with talked about how he was shy, that he kept to himself. And this seems very fitting for a closeted gay man not wanting to be out. What he would do is he would travel two hours south to Miami to socialize on the weekends. So he would go to Miami where he would go to gay bars and and he had gay friends and have sex with other men. And that two-hour drive gave him freedom to be who he was. Right. He was living like his Miami life, Miami David and Treasure Coast David. Where in Florida is the Treasure Coast? The Treasure Coast consists of several small towns. Jensen Beach, Stewart, Florida. Um, is it in the north? It's near Fort Pierce. It's kind of... Uh, it's almost central Florida. You went down there and interviewed people. I want to hear about that. Yeah, I went several times, actually. I went to the courthouse to look through courthouse documents, went to the local library to look at their press clipping files. And I wanted to talk with the people who worked with David and people who knew him personally. It was very hard to find people. So the men that he would have associated with, you know, we lost an entire generation due to AIDS. Right. So it was hard to find men who were closeted at the time, potentially not even living. Also, women, as they grow older, they, they marry and they change their names, you know, with marrying. So it was very hard to, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to track down people who knew him. And ultimately I ran an ad in the newspaper asking um, for people who knew David or were patients of his to contact me. And I purposely gave my telephone number, my home telephone number. I thought only about giving my email address, but given the age, I was unsure if everyone had. Email. Right. What was the reaction like to the ad? Was it a few people? Was it, did you get pranks? My phone rang often and it rang with people who wanted to know why I was researching him. Someone called, asked why I was wanting to know about a murderer. Other people called to give me their opinion about what happened in that dental office, though they weren't even living in the area at the time. Uh, although I also had phone calls from people who were his actual patients. Right, so you, you did get calls from people that were actually useful to what you were doing. Yes, a lot of them, actually. And some of them told me really sweet stories about David giving them theater tickets and uh, giving discounts on dental work when they couldn't afford it. I eventually met a woman who was best friends with one of David's lovers who... She talked about how she was volunteering with um, underprivileged kids. And then he offered and took all of them out on his boat for a day. So these really kind of like these generous acts of his that were never reported in any of the, in any of the newspaper or media at the time. Also, the CDC was unable to locate any sexual partners of David's. And I actually talked to a sexual partner of David's about their encounter in a hotel in Fort Lauderdale. Right. So you did find people that know him. Was he totally closeted in his life as a dentist at the time? Or did, there, did he have a few friends that knew? Or was he pretty much totally closeted? His staff did not know. In fact, right. when he was ill, he, you know, he started to have a sickly appearance and was losing weight. And he told his staff that he had cancer. 
And this right. is what a lot of gay men did at the time who were positive because cancer is blameless, right? Right. No, cancer is, people feel bad automatically. Like, and, and, and it's touched so many people that it isn't so mysterious. It's sort of yes. like a lot of people have cancer stories in their family, for sure. Um, yeah. And yet in 1991, if you had HIV or AIDS, it was seemingly well-deserved, right? There were the acceptable forms of transmission and the unacceptable forms of transmission. Um, the right. people who got it through blood transfusions or sexual assault, those were the people who had uh, public sympathy. Right. And, and the people who got it through IV drug use or sexual contact that's a different story. Yeah, they had a coming. Yes. Um, that's not cool. Now, the title is A Quilt for David, talking about the AIDS quilt. And one of his accusers that, that passed away from AIDS, Kimberly, uh, has four panels on the quilt, you wrote. Does David have any? No, he does not, actually. And that was one of the saddest things for me to encounter when doing research is that you know, that contrast, like what I was just saying about acceptable forms of transmission and right. unacceptable forms, what risks do we forgive and what risks do we punish? And just even using that as an example, Kimberly, who was an avowed virgin, um, though seemingly not so. What was her last name again, Kimberly? Bergalis. Yeah, Bergalis. Right. Like she was saying she was a virgin, but she had done some stuff. Yes. The virgin thing was a stretch it seems as if it were yes right, right. um there was a medical sure. report where she had vaginal warts right i wrote that down on a post-it <laughs> because even if he if if somebody had gotten aids from their dentist would they have vaginal warts if that was the only exposure to anything like that what we know is vaginal warts are generally um sexually transmitted right, right? Um, she also, though in a tape death position, admitted to having oral sex. Um, that is a low risk HIV activity, yet seems to be a little bit higher risk than dental transmission, which there have been no documented reported cases of dental transmission. Right. And she, you know, this, this idea of Kimberly as innocent and pure is really what helped um garner the public attention and sympathy yes because yeah. i don't want to seem like i'm slut shaming her or anything like that but her whole shtick was i'm pure as the driven snow and my dentist this is because of my dentist and yes. that story isn't doesn't really hold up to the to the light no it doesn't um kimberly repeatedly would use the expression i did nothing wrong and I would say I can agree with her because I also believe no one else who became infected at that time right. did anything wrong. Right. And, and so it was really important for me in the book. This isn't a book slamming his accusers. This is a book where I'm, I'm holding great generosity and care uh, for everyone who's a part of this story, but I am exploring the dynamics of what was going on then. Yes. And, and there were echoes that resonated with today, especially with different theories around coronavirus and how, you know, like, like that people can, people can hold on to a theory that they need to believe is true, no matter what the science is saying, or no matter what, what, uh, the scientists are saying. Um, oh, yeah, they need to. And that's what I think, you know, when we hear these people without um, education or expertise in science um, being anti-vaxxers, it, it did remind me of the time my phone was ringing and people were giving me their opinion, yet they weren't involved directly in the situation. Right. I also think that... Um, when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, it seemed like social people were positioning it on social media, and the media were they were um, positioning it as super spreader events. And how dare they? Yet the data 
doesn't necessarily back up a gathering of people outside right. is actually a super spreading event. So that's an example of where bias and discrimination really shape people's opinion of what a risk is. And they will hold on to that. They are they they can't be persuaded out of it a lot of the times. Um, when you went down there and started researching this, did you know it was going to be poetry? Did you know how you were going to present it? At first, I didn't. I thought I might actually write a very straightforward nonfiction book. Right. And one thing that was clear is that, you know, the information was almost always there. I did, there are a lot of things in this book that are revealed publicly for the first time. But it seemed as if Kimberly being a virgin, you know, she's this archetype, right? Another, right, she's very an, small, right? She looked very vulnerable on the talk shows. Like there was a, there was a, um, visually, she's very striking and, and your heart goes out to her. Oh, of course. And there was an older woman who was a grandmother, so it was like the virgin and the grandmother. Right. So Kimberly was able to garner public sympathy. And I thought, you know, poetry is the language of our emotions. And what if through poetry, I was able to elicit empathy for David and help really, and help people see the complexity of David's life and his situation. So I, I thought poetry is strong enough to do the labor of that task. Also, there, you know, it's, it's, you know, at the time it was 20 years later when I was doing the research, so much information wasn't there. And so these poems, it's really kind of like a patchwork of poetry that complete a quilt, which, um, you know, this book is my quilt for David. Right, this is his panel from yeah. you. Three of his accusers got nearly a million dollars. Where did the money come from? Insurance? Yes, through his malpractice I insurance. So the first three million came from his malpractice insurance. And the other insurance money, that's, they, they actually received more than a million. Right, that's so, what I saw. Yeah, but I didn't know where that first chain came from. So there's malpractice insurance, and then there's another kind of insurance. The insurance provider that referred them to David Acker's dental office, they were also sued. Wow. And so that's where more money was um, collected by the accusers. And what also struck me is that he was already pretty sick as this all started playing out. So he didn't have any, he couldn't really defend himself or, in other words, he was not somebody that could go on Donahue and, and, and push back, right? He was already pretty unwell as it all started playing out. Is that right? Yes. And actually how the timeline works is that um, he was aware, and this is just uh, probably a week or so before the end of his life. He was aware that a patient came forward and, and blamed her HIV status on him. Right. He was aware of that. Three days before his death, when lying in a hospice bed, he wrote a letter that was published in the newspaper stating that he's aware that someone has made this accusation. He took all the necessary precautions. He does not believe that this is the case. And he said it would go against everything he believes in and stands for. He then urged all of his patients to get an HIV test. Um... He, he wrote that on his hospice bed. So he was, he knew, the ball was just beginning to roll with the lawsuits and stuff. Yes. And, and, then, he, and then he passed away. And he didn't actually know who the accuser was. She was anonymous at the time. Interesting. And that letter was published in the newspaper. It was actually an ad that his parents took out because they wanted the letter in its entirety. Published in the newspaper. It was published three days after his death. Wow. His parents didn't turn their back on him. They were there for him, which I was heartened to see, right? Oh, it's so heartening to see. Yes, his parents, Victor and Harriet Acer Acker, they moved in with him to take care of him. And towards the end of his life, they checked him into a hospice under an alias 
so newspaper reporters um, would leave them alone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was, because I, I, that could have gone another way, you know, especially at that time. Um, so, so I was moved to see that. Yeah. Also, his mother was very religious. Yeah. And, and, it, and he only came out to his mom when he was sick. So at the same time that he told her that he was not straight, he also disclosed that he had HIV. Yeah. And, it, and, and she was able to be there for him. Yes. And, and dutifully, too, I talked with a hospice nurse who remembers um, his mom and stepfather coming in every single day and just sitting by his bedside. And you were able to talk to them? Yes. Yeah. In his prime, what was David like? Was he handsome? Seemingly so. Yeah. There are only a handful of public photos of David and he was six foot, he was blonde, he had blue eyes, uh, a pretty slim frame. He played tennis and seemed to be pretty active. Um, he was also very concerned about his appearance. He started losing his hair and he had uh, hair transplants put in. And that he's got that dentist he, money, he's got the boat, like, he's got a, <laughs> yes. and you know what? He needs to look good for Miami, so right, yes, he's going to Miami. I once went to Miami the first time I was there, and I was looking around, and like the postman's a bodybuilder, the, the UPS guy is a bodybuilder, everybody looks like they stepped out of a Tom of Finland catalog. It's a lot, and my point about Miami, yeah, no, especially at that time. And when I heard, you know, as someone who you know, now shaves his head and was losing my hair. Like I had a lot of empathy for David and what that's like to be so young. You know, David died at 40. Yeah. And so this must've been in his early thirties that he had these hair transplants and yet how cruelly people talked about the hair transplants. And so that's the reason I did not mention it in the book. I just felt like it was so, um, it to me seems like such a such a tender thing about him to be so concerned right. about how he looked. And also for a man like that to then have Carposi sarcoma, right? Yeah. These purplish lesions that are so visible and were such the telltale signs of having AIDS. And for him to have that, how how upsetting that must have been for him. And you write in one of your poems, did he try to remove one of the legions from the roof of his mouth? Oh, yeah. Would you like me to read that poem for you? Yes. All right. I don't, I don't mean to sound so excited about a poem about something so upsetting, but I do love a poetry reading on my podcast. Okay. Educated to heal, to provide comfort, to treat injuries of the mouth. There was one you couldn't handle. The soul K.S. soar on the roof of your mouth. Soon there were four. On an evening in May, you carted a dental electric party home, an electric device that carterizes wounds. In the dimly lit bathroom mirror, you used it to send your palate. Red hot electric heat on wet tissue, repeated the procedure, burning each lesion. Dentist, heal thyself. Ooh. How did you know he did that? There were a lot of questions about the dental equipment and if maybe he had treated himself with his own dental equipment and that's how HIV was transmitted to his patients. While he was live, he consented to one interview with a CDC investigator and I believe that's when it was disclosed that he took a piece of dental equipment home with him. That's interesting. Wow. Um, I noticed on the page, some of your poems look like what lay people think poems look like, and some of them are just paragraphs. Talk about the distinction and, and why you choose to do that. Some felt a little bit more like reportage. So they kind of have that standard format, like one might see in a newspaper where it's right. a full justification. And also with poetry, the, sh- the lines the short lines create a quick poem. So sometimes it's information to move through quickly. And it's just a way I felt like those forms serve the poem 
and what I want each poem to convey. Right. And how you want them to feel to the reader. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of characters in this story that I feel like would be in a great movie or a miniseries, um, an American crime story, or maybe a Coen Brothers thing. So I'm just going to mention them and then talk to me about these people. Bob <clears throat> Montgomery. Robert Montgomery was a high-powered lawyer hired by the Burgalis family. He was the one who really, I, he knew a media spin. And so after David's letter was public, he organized a press conference the next day and had Kimberly come forward stating that she was the person accusing the dentist of infecting her. Wow, he moved fast on that. He did. And you could imagine after, you know, reading David's letter that it would, the, the public would soften. And so he took that moment and he, he wasn't going to let that moment sit right. in with people. Yeah. He also is responsible for suing the state of Florida uh, for tobacco. He was a very charismatic man. And one of the sad things I discovered was that he, he had a son, Scott Montgomery, who died of an AIDS-related illness. And this was around the same time that he was ill, that, that he was working with these clients, right? That his son was yeah. ill. Yes, and he never disclosed it. He disclosed it once. And I really hope that the generosity and attention he gave Kimberly, he also gave his gay son, but I don't think that was the case. Tell me about Harold Jaffe. Harold Jaffe is a CDC investigator and really oversaw this case. And I was struck by how young he was. He actually wasn't much older than Kimberly at the time. And it seems at one point he was given information about Kimberly's other outside risk factors and they were ignored. Meaning that the other ways that she could have possibly uh, gotten HIV. Yes. Um, and even just paying attention to the rumors, one of the women I talked with said her daughters went to Kimberly and said, um, quote unquote, she, she got around. Right. So, you know, these things really bear, it's, it's important to look at these. And it seems as if maybe, you know, he was also probably overloaded with things on his plate. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there were a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah, he was a person doing a job. Jesse Helms is mentioned in your book, the, uh, the politician. Jesse Helms said on the Senate floor that people like David Acker should be horsewhipped. Man, Kimberly tried to make happen a bill that health workers would have to disclose their HIV status, but it didn't pass. Is that right? It never came to fruition, actually. Right. So shortly before Kimberly's death, she took an Amtrak train um, from Florida to D.C. where she spoke to Congress and she was lobbying for a mandate that HIV-positive healthcare workers disclose their status to all right. of their patients. That was her big cause, right? Yes. And it's incredibly problematic because it would affect the livelihood of so many HIV-positive healthcare workers. Right. Also, when we talked earlier about the acceptable forms of transmission and unacceptable forms of transmission of HIV at that time, you know, healthcare workers were at extreme risk of HIV. There are a lot of healthcare workers that were positive that became positive from needle sticks. Mm. And it would have jeopardized their jobs. Right. But it didn't, did it, didn't, it didn't, it didn't end up happening, which is great. It never did officially pass. Now, Barbara Webb was the grandmother who also uh, had HIV and sued and, and won a settlement with the same lawyer, right? Yes. Robert Montgomery represented Barbara Webb. She was married, a retired school teacher and a grandmother she also had an extramarital affair right, with a man who lived in Key West, Florida by himself. Right. And like a confirmed bachelor type. 
Uh-huh. But her image in the media and all of, during this time was grandmother, victim, right? None of this stuff about her affair or anything came out at the time, right? No. She also had hip surgery where um, she received a blood transfusion. And she had symptoms consistent with HIV before she had gone to see the dentist, right? I believe so. Whose symptoms were really startling were Kimberly's. Yeah. Kimberly's symptoms were very rapid if she were, in fact, infected by the dentist. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the last accusers apparently only had a dental cleaning, and they're unsure if that dental cleaning was even performed by David Acker. And this was this Lisa? Uh, that's Sherry Johnson. Ah, Sherry Johnson, another one. Tell me about um, Lisa Shoemaker, because her fate ended up being different in terms of the settlement and all of that, right? Lisa Shoemaker was in an abusive relationship with a bisexual man who also saw David Acker, actually. And Lisa left the relationship and she moved back home, I think, to Michigan. And when she came forward and accused David, she was very forthright about her outside risk factors. Right. She didn't paint herself as such an innocent victim as Kimberly did. Yes. And the media, the media really treated her. um, It's interesting to see how the media treated Kimberly versus how they treated Lisa. As an example, there's a beach named after Kimberly. There's the Kimberly Bergalis beach. There's a statue in Kimberly's honor um, at her old high school. There are like memorial trees and, um, and, you know, Lisa's still living. She volunteers doing HIV education at schools. I Did you I really, get to talk to her? We corresponded, and she was so kind to give me um, copies of her archives and her information. And though, you know, she does believe she was infected by the dentist. Right. And um, I... You know, Lisa, for a summer, worked in a carnival. And so she was disparaged in the media as being a carny. Right. Oh. I think that's so, it's so classist and terrible um, that this is how she was referred to. You know, she wasn't as camera ready as Kimberly. And, um, yeah, it's... And she didn't get the big settlement. Um, he didn't. Actually, Robert Montgomery did not represent her. Right. You need Robert Montgomery. Because here's what I was doing. As I was reading it, I was thinking about all of the themes that you explore, the scapegoating, the paranoia, the, 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 the sort of media pylon and all of this stuff. And then it was one of those moments where you go, oh, follow the money. This is about money. Some yes. people got really, really rich off this. And like life-changingly rich and oh yeah and they and they're blaming it on somebody that's no longer around to dispute anything at who the 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 media and then the population are already reviled by so ka-ching ka-ching right yeah and you know gays were so you know the low social status of gay men made it very easy to prey upon them especially a dead gay man who whose family um, chose not to speak to the media. And so there were no dissenting voices up against this narrative. That right. Was he wasn't fun. around to push back and his family wasn't pushing. Nobody was around to push back. In a way, you're doing that with this book. Do you feel a, a bit like... I don't know, avenging is a strong word, but you feel a bit like you're trying to tell a side of the story that wasn't really told at the time? Yes, that's what I am doing. And it's 30 years later, and it's still, you know, though people can just shrug off and be like, oh, that was 30 years ago. But, you know, what happened to David Acker could happen to any of us. This is what's important to remember, is that someone can come forward and change um, the course of our lives, or our legacy, 
you know, this is really, this is kind of like cancel culture where people react quickly and they don't slow down to look at all the facts and all the information. Yeah, and it can define your life and your future. Um, Kimberly played the victim and she was, you know, small and she was, she was sick. I mean, she was quite a compelling media figure. What was she like as a person? Did you, did you find things about her that you liked? Yes, I, I, I really felt for everyone involved in this situation. Um, you know, Kimberly's parents seemed very critical and punitive. And I think that it might have been really hard to be a Kimberly Burgalis. Right. Um, she also wrote a, a public letter and, and it's seemingly very dramatic. And so I know that, that it's a letter that, that was widely shared at the time. And yet reading it now, it seems a little um, kind of exaggerated. I understand the anger. What was the letter like? What was, what was the message? I blame, I blame every single one of you. Is you one of you gay people? No. Uh, no, the people who do not, who aren't, you know, the, the fact that there are no laws in place um, mandating HIV disclosure of right. healthcare workers. I see. That's where she hung her hat. That's the hill she was, well, re- fighting on, right? That was her thing. Yes. Um, but it seemed like she and her parents needed to believe the dentist story. Possibly. Yeah. It, it's a story that offered everyone, um, it, it offered quite a lot, right? Yeah. And like anything in our own lives that it's hard to sometimes sit with our personal responsibility for the situation that we're in. Right. To just look and reflect on what we have contributed to a situation that we don't like. Right. And, and so, you know, with David's death and with these accusations, it, it made it really convenient for people to point the finger. Yeah. There was a study on HIV transmission where people who were positive were asked when they became infected. And most people in the survey were able to pinpoint the one moment that they really believed it was this one person or this one moment that they became infected And yet, when looking at the data, there were so many other opportunities for HIV infection besides just that one moment. And so what that shows us is that there's there's an emotional component. You know, like, it's easier to think, um, I'm just giving an example, it's easier to think that that bad one-night stand I had is how I got HIV, not that person I dated for six months. Right. We have an emotional reason for a certain story over another story. And we, we might hang on to that. Um, I thought it was interesting that he was a veteran, David. So a lot of his medical care was happening through the VA, which at that time, dealing with HIV and a closet, like that just seems uh, to add more uh, intensity to the situation. Yes. Um, and I think that's also probably why at the beginning of his diagnosis, he was going to doctors and using aliases. Oh, wow. Um, Interesting. So that same drive that he took to socialize towards the end of his life, he was taking to see doctors in Fort Lauderdale and Miami and using an alias. I, I, there was something that happened between Barbara, the grandmother, and Kimberly a conversation they had or something about a torch I wrote down. Let me find that page for you. In this poem also, it mentions Scott Montgomery. And it also talks about um, a very large, generous gift that Robert Montgomery gave Kimberly. Yeah. Let's, would you like to read it? Yeah, I would love to. Okay, let's do it. Bob Montgomery fought for her, took the case, wrote documents, led proceedings, did interviews, talked with the press, handed out his card, smoked cigars. He fought for her as if she were his own, but she wasn't. He had his own son, infected as well. Kimberly drove to Miami in her new car, money provided by Montgomery. 
she accepted the $5,000 as a gift or possibly a bribe. I just don't know why. I just believe her. Gut or guilt or greed made the Southern man believe. Scott Montgomery died in 1992, a year after Kimberly. Did his father make tributes to him in the newspaper, sit by his bedside? Was he treated the same way as she? Was his illness deserved? When Kimberly met Barbara, she was relieved, said, thank God there's someone to carry the torch. I'm too tired. As Kim was dying, Barbara called her. I have a firm grip on the torch. What was she carrying? What did that torch illuminate? Oh, there's so much in there. So many threads. Um, this is such a powerful book, and it's so, it's so interesting. It paints a really interesting portrait of the time. What do you hope people get from it? Oh, well, one, I do hope that there's a vindication of David Acker, similar to Patient Zero. You yeah. Know, or- are familiar with this myth of the French-Canadian flight attendant, Gaetan Dugas, you know, traveling around, infecting people. And, and that became popularized in Randy Schultz's book, And the Band Played On, which then became a movie, and almost sealed that story. And a few years ago, Richard McKay wrote a book called Patient Zero and really debunks it. And now there's a documentary, actually, about uh, Patient Zero as well. And... You know, my book, A Quilt for David, is coming out 30 years after the incident as well. And I really hope that it allows people to see that this story is folklore and not fact. I also think that though it's a specific story about what was happening in this one dental office, it also gives an idea of what it was like for gay men living at that time. And that this incident did not happen in a vacuum. There are so many factors that that created the perfect storm. Yeah, one of the things that you write that I wrote down, maybe it did happen, not to all, but maybe a few. The others wrote it for the money. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was a little chilling to me. And also, I think when you have gay men with AIDS so stigmatized, so looked down on, you can justify doing stuff like that. It's easier to justify. Oh yeah, I'm 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 maybe behaving unethically or or taking advantage of this to get to to get rich or whatever, but it's just those guys. They're less than. They're they're not worth. They've got to come in, you know. Yes, and I keep using the word humanize when I talk about this book. Like it was my like what I wanted to do was humanize David, but when you think about it, when we try to justify when when society has tried to justify poor behavior, you know what you know during the time of slavery, it's not that they were humans, they were animals, right? And so you know, gay men were animals, right? They were less than. And so it is, you know, such an abuse of power. Um, yeah. Well, I hope that everybody reads this, and I think it's beautiful what you created. This guy, it really made me feel for him and and what he represented. So congrats. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that um, there's a photo of David on the cover. So I feel like people really get to um, have a visual experience of him. Yeah. Well, it's just my wording. And um, thank you so much for such a like deep dive into the book. Oh yeah. I, I have a lot of notes, right? Yeah, no, it's, it was, <laughs> Wait, those are a lot of notes actually. <laughs> this is, there's two. Let me see if I wrote anything else down that I didn't cover. Oh, you wrote that you for over 10 years, you worked in HIV testing uh, in that field. So you, would you give people the news of whether they were positive or, or, or negative? Yes. For 10 years, I did HIV testing and counseling in in Florida and in California. And I estimated once that I tested and given results to about 9,000 people. What was it like to tell people yes or no, or positive or negative? How, how did you approach that? That's, that's hard and it's your job. Yeah. It was also a job I I had a lot of training in, you know? Um, So fortunately there was that it, was never easy. I also knew that moment is not about me. 
that moment was about caring for someone else, connecting them with the resources that they needed, giving them the information that could be helpful for them. And, um, you know, I disclosed to, to countless people their HIV status. And the really brutal days at work were when I disclosed more than once, you know, to have two or three people in a day to give a positive diagnosis to, those were, those were really hard days. Yeah, I can imagine. There's a, a, a scene in the book where you go to the place where his office used to be, right? But it's not an office anymore. No, his office has changed several times. For a brief period of time, it was a nightclub um, okay. called Club Envy. And now it's a, I'm, I'm going to, I use the term casino. I think there's kind of a loophole right. around it actually being a casino, but um there, you know, there's essentially slot machines in the office where David used to practice. And you played them. Yeah, I played the Robin Hood slot machine. And you don't say in the book whether you won or not. Should we leave that a mystery? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's the biggest mystery of this story, actually. Whether, <laughs> whether you got to pay out. Were there ever cases where it was proven that a dentist transmitted HIV to a patient? Were they, did they ever, was that ever a thing where like, that's absolutely what happened in this case? Not with David, with anybody. No. There was never. There were not. Yeah. At the time of this incident, they were using a genetic sequencing test. And that is what they used as evidence linking David's HIV with his accusers. During that one CDC interview, David consented to a blood draw. So they did have samples of his blood. In the book, The Gravest Show on Earth, um, there's a section about the situation. And the, the writer talks about how this test that they used for David, they're no longer using in the UK because there are so many um, problems with it. One example is when using the genetic sequencing for mothers, HIV positive mothers and their positive children, that it there it doesn't match. So it's and not that, reliable. No, it's not a reliable test. Yeah. So there's no proven cases that that's ever happened. But that was that was what people uh believed at that time. A lot of people believed. And your book is shedding some light on what that time was like. So Congrats again. Are you doing any events for it or anything that people should watch out for? How can they find out about it? Oh, yeah. Well, one, the website, aquiltfordavid.com, nice. as well as my own website, which is stephenrains.com, Stephen with a V, Rains, R-E-I-G-N-S. I'm actually having a L.A. book launch, and that's happening on Saturday, October 2nd at 3 p.m. That's going to be outside at St. Felix Hollywood. And nice. Yeah, Ann Magnuson is actually um, leading the discussion for the Q&A for that. So I'm thrilled. I love it. That. I'm also doing a reading on October 16th in St. Louis, Missouri. There's a virtual reading with Johnny McGovern on 11-11. I'm also right now planning readings in New York, uh, Seattle, and um, I'm, I'm trying to get a Florida tour together because I would really love to you know, especially in Jensen Beach, where this situation happened, I would love to do a reading there. Oh my gosh, that would be intense. Okay, I, I hope you do that and I hope I get to hear about it. Um, <laughs> final question, why is poetry your thing? Why do you love it? Oh, I just feel it deeply. And it's what excites me. Um, and, and so I've just continually followed that in some ways just being a hedonist that I just kind of continue that love and that passion and I rarely write anything that's not poetry right I um I do read a little outside of poetry as well but most of the books in my home are poetry books that's your it, thing you love it yeah it's a lifelong love I love it well it was fun talking to you you created something really special uh, you brought somebody to life that deserved a, a second look and uh, wish you best of luck with the book. Thank you so much, Dennis, for having me. I appreciate it. 
Thanks again to Stephen Rains. Check out his book, A Quilt for David. All right, so this happened a couple of weeks ago, a couple weekends ago. Um, it was Gay Days Anaheim, which is when all the gays descend on Disneyland for a, for a weekend. And they uh, wear red shirts and, you know, do the whole park thing. But there are activities nearby, like at the, at the hotel nearby, that are part of the weekend but are not in the park itself. And so um, a friend of mine that I've known for a long time, Eddie Shapiro, is the producer of Gay Days Anaheim. And so he reached out to me a few months ago and said, hey, would you be interested in doing Mismatch Game and possibly a You Don't Know My Life game? Um, party. So I said yes to both, and we didn't know how it was going to go. We didn't know if anyone was going to show up. We didn't know how the logistics would be with the COVID restrictions. It turned out for the mismatch game, we had to have all the panelists on stage six feet apart from each other. Um, but it worked out. So I said yes, and uh, we were going to do the mismatch game one day, and then the next day I would host a, a game party for whoever wanted to come and play You Don't Know My Life. So... We get down to Anaheim, and the show goes great. We have, like, 60 people in the audience. The cast is really funny. We have Danielle Gaither from Matt TV doing Wendy Williams, and she faints on stage, which is just like the real Wendy. Um, my friend Felix Pyre did Jim Henson, and he did two puppets. He did Kermit and Ernie. And Ernie was enchanting. I had a little flirtation going with Ernie, like a little running bit. And it actually felt really real it's sort of like romance feeling i don't know it's been a while like yeah i clearly need to get out more but um and then we had chris pudlow did uh Wee herman danny casillas did reba Ariba. dante did gilbert godfried and who am i missing oh we had a new person uh laurie tatulian did um Sharon Osbourne and it was really funny she had a little daytime talk show feud going with Wendy we always love a little inner panel feud if it's organic um, I think my favorite answer that I remember uh, the question was Disney World and Ricky Martin are both turning 50 this year it turns out they have a lot in common they're both they both attract huge crowds they're both great with kids and they both blank and Danny, as Reba Ariba said, they both are no longer accepting fast passes, which I thought was kind of brilliant. Um, but oh, who wouldn't want to make a fast pass with Ricky Martin? Anyway, he still got it, is the point. Um, and then the next way, day, I drove back down and we did a You Don't Know My Life party for like 10 people around a table. It was the first time I played the game with people in a room, not over Zoom in a year and a half and I luckily I remembered how it worked uh, but they were into it it was fun so all in all it was one of those things where like I don't know if we should even be doing this but let's do it let's go for it and we'll try to make it fun no matter what happens and it was fun and it turned out good so yay that's it alright that's enough for this week thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone bye bye